Now, Ballinrobe, Carlow, Ross Cray, three locations that have all featured in the news this week when protests were mounted against plans to provide accommodation locally for asylum seekers. The protests come against the backdrop of a number of arson attacks carried out recently on empty buildings identified either correctly or incorrectly as being the intended lodgings of international protection applicants. The reason for opposition to accommodating asylum seekers range from anger over a lack of consultation in advance to pressure on resources to fears for safety, particularly where single men are arriving. We'll get the thoughts of our political panel on this in a few minutes. But firstly, I've been speaking to Dr Joan Giller. She's a medical doctor and a psychotherapist with wide experience of working with victims of torture. She spent the last 20 years compiling reports for the courts on claims of asylum. Now, I want to warn listeners that some of the detail in this interview is harrowing. I began by asking Joan Giller what she sees most commonly amongst the asylum seekers she meets in her work. I think most of the people that I would see as single men or women, a lot of the women would have children with them, although there are some couples as well. But most of the people that I would see are very traumatised by the situations that they've come from. They'd be frightened, anxious, depressed, unable to sleep, lonely. You know, while most people, I, I think, are incredibly resilient given the amount of suffering that they've gone through, but, but some of them are suicidal. And, you know, some people have come from countries where they've suffered from torture and, you know, they might have physical signs such as bullet wounds or scars from beating or tying with rope or cutting or burning, electrocution, or they will have electric probes attached to them and be given electric shocks in order to try to elicit information, you know, when people are under interrogation. But I think that, yeah, the psychological effects are often the deepest and the longest lasting problems that people have. So I would see a lot of people suffering from nightmares and flashbacks and those sort of things. And based on on, on what you've seen in terms of of the physical scars, when writing the supporting documentation for somebody who is seeking asylum in Ireland, to what extent are you able to, to verify how people came by those scars or at least give your own professional assessment of how consistent those injuries are with torture? Yes, I mean, that's that's one of the things that we're asked to do. And, you know, there are some scars which are clearly, you know, seen. Cigarette burns, for instance, and scars from electrocution are often fairly typical, you know, that you would be certain that that was where they came from. Not all scars are like that, but, you know, often it's it's a picture, it's a pattern of scarring. It's not just one scar, it's, it's every scar, and it's also a psychological profile as well, matched with the, you know, the history that you know of the country that somebody's come from and the particular, you know, forms of torture that might be used there. And in terms of the people who are most often victims of the kind of torture, maybe from being incarcerated by militias or state actors or even trafficking gangs in the case of some people who've ended up in, in Libya, are they mostly male or is it a mix of male and female? How does that how does that divide up? I think I would see equal amounts of men and women, although, you know, the things that that happen to them may well be very different. Do you know? In, in what way? A lot of well, I mean, a lot of the women and and some men, but but a vast you know number of women have have suffered from rape as a form of 
torture. And in terms of the countries of origin, Somalia features quite highly in the number of people coming coming to Ireland. Have you come across or treated people from from Somalia and, and what are their stories like? Yes, I've seen many people from Somalia, both men and women, although I think there are quite a, a number of, of single men who've come from Somalia. I, I mean, as you know, the Al-Shabaab militia is very active in Somalia at the moment and a lot that's, of people that's the come... Local, be- the local Al-Qaeda in, in that's, Somalia. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of people, you know, coming have suffered from extreme torture at the hands of, of Al-Shabaab or had family members killed or women having been raped or forced into marriage. And what about some of the other countries which are, you know, on the list of people who arrive here most often? We hear about Algeria and indeed Georgia. Have you ever treated anybody from from those countries or are you have you any awareness of what people might be using to support their asylum claim here if they are applying for asylum? Yes, I, I have seen people from those countries. And, you know, again, I mean, it, it's like the, the notion of a safe country. A country's only safe if you know, if the people who come from it can receive an adequate, receive adequate protection from the state, so from the police or the government. And it it appears that that isn't always the case. You know, people may have fallen foul of the government or in some countries there are criminal gangs who might have links with some of the police. You know, those are the sort of stories I hear that where people are not going to be protected in that sort of situation and, and that's why they end up leaving And what do you make of the situation at the moment where single young men are bottom of the pile when it comes to being prioritised for accommodation and very much the target of antipathy in communities? I think it's heartbreaking, the, you know, the things that are being said at the moment. You know, in my experience, single young male asylum seekers are not criminals. You know, it's criminals don't tend to come and seek asylum. And these people are not dangerous any more than any other community of people. They're rather, they're the ones who are in danger from the sort of language that's being used at the moment to describe them. I think that, you know, most people who use this sort of language do it out of a sense of of fear. And fear tends to, to come from a place of ignorance. I can only say that it's very sad that... People can't see further than, you know, a sense of danger where there really isn't one. The fear seems to be, although it's often unsaid, is that single young men are coming from countries where attitudes towards women and women's equality may not be the same as in Ireland. And if they are gathering in large numbers with no work for their first six months in Ireland, they may represent a danger to young women in Ireland. Would you say that is what underlies these fears and how would you go about addressing that if you were in authority in Ireland it may underlie those fears i can't i can't say because i don't you know what i mean i i actually don't have that fear myself why is it that you don't share those fears and maybe your own perspective of having met with dealt treated people maybe your own perspective on why you don't share those fears might be worthwhile hearing in that case okay well i wouldn't share those fears just simply because of the the caliber of the people that i've met if we're talking about young men i meet people who are respectful who are grateful who are wanting to give back to Irish society because 
they're grateful for the sense of safety and welcome they've had. There's so much goodness there in people that all of this rhetoric, this language just hides. So I can only say in answer to your question that it's just based on my experience of actually having spent a lot of time talking to and getting to know some of the young men who've come to Ireland. And are people seeking asylum aware of the debate? Are they aware of the atmosphere in Ireland? Are they aware of the likes of arson attacks? And and what impact is it having on people, if so? Absolutely, definitely they are. I think that, you know, especially for people living in direct provision in Dublin, that I've I've spoken to to many people who are afraid to go out alone and, you know, who won't go out at all after dark and who are scared for their children. You know, it's a heartbreaking situation. And the other thing to, to say as well is the fact that, you know, asylum seekers are arriving from very difficult situations and are then being put onto the streets in Dublin because of the lack of accommodation. To me, that's insupportable. You know, I've seen people who have been, frankly, suicidal because that's where they've ended up and they've been attacked. And I think it's it's like the end of the road. You feel that you've come to a place where you are seeking safety and only to find a situation, you know, where these may well be people who've come from a middle-class background who've never even considered sleeping on the streets before. And uh, I find that that's one of the hardest things in the last few years to to face is that, that we don't have room for people. And that was Dr Joan Giller, who has wide experience of hearing the stories of asylum speakers, seekers speaking to me there and indeed who has treated <coughs> many of them. If you are affected by any of the issues raised in that, you can go to rte.ie forward slash helplines. Now, let me introduce you to the political panel joining us in studio today. They're Barry Ward, Finnegale Senator and Shannon Spokesperson on Justice, Verona Murphy, Independent TD for Wexford and Paul Murphy, People Before Profit TD for Dublin South West. Good afternoon. Welcome to you all. Um, Barry Ward, can I start with you first? The stories that are outlined by Dr Joan Giller there, wouldn't it be as well for government to outline those stories to concerned communities rather than doing U-turns when people raise concerns about single young men being accommodated? Well, certainly I agree that there needs to be more information put out there and and part of that job is to be done by the government, absolutely. I don't accept that a U-turn is what we saw in Ballinrobe. The policy that the department has put in place is very clear and that is that priority is always given to families, women and we know that in the last couple of weeks the numbers of those groups relative to young individual men, for example, has increased twofold and so the priorities changed in relation to that accommodation. Sure, but are there situations where single men were going to be accommodated and that was changed. Yeah. After protests were mounted, whether you whether you whether you insist or not, there was a causal link. Yeah, it, it the appearance is certainly the protest, there. Yes, but it wasn't because of the protest. And do you accept important. that the change in use of that accommodation following protests looks like a causal link and gives credence to those fears that uh, Dr. Joan Giller was trying to address there? Well, I can say very clearly, having been briefed on this by the department, that 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 there was no U-turn on the basis of the protest. The decision was made on the basis of the fact that the number of women and families coming in went up from 298 to 505 per month. And so the demand for that section massively increased and in accordance with the policy, they were prioritised for accommodation over individuals. Do you accept, and based on what Joan Giller was saying there, that there are situations now where traumatised young men are arriving in Ireland? Their fears are being further heightened by the tone of the debate here and then they are being further made 
they're further traumatised by being made homeless and left in vulnerable situations potentially open to attack. I can I, I think that is definitely happening and I can tell you from the emails that I get that a lot of people misunderstand the situation. And I think what we heard from Joan there is really important because we don't enough see the people coming here as people, as fellow citizens of the world, people who might be us in another circumstance. And whether they are men on their own or men with families or women with families or families doesn't matter. But they doesn't the two tier system reinforce that notion that they are something other? If people no, find themselves so. in tents, if they find themselves on the streets, they do not enjoy the same rights as others. First of all, it's, it's highly regrettable that anybody would be in a situation where there is not accommodation available to them. <coughs> as you know, Cullum, we've accommodated well over 100,000 people, I think, uh, um, in, in, in including uh, Ukrainians who've come here. We've gone way beyond what anybody thought the country was capable of. And where possible, we have accommodated people. At the moment, there is definitely huge pressure on accommodation for international protection applicants. But people should be in no doubt. Um, those people are categorised differently because of their, their different circumstances. And I think anybody can recognise the difference between, let's say, a family with young children or a man on his own. Okay. They are different in terms of their capacity to deal with the situation. Before I go to the rest of the panel, what's the situation with Racket Hall Hotel in Ross Cray? Is that going to be used to accommodate people seeking international protection or not? My understanding is that it is, but uh, it's a matter for the department to clarify. And, and as I say, I support the notion that more and more information, not consultation, because it, I don't want anybody to get the impression that they have a veto. They don't. But I think communities, uh, including local stakeholders, should be given as much information as possible about who's coming so they know in advance. And they can allay fears in that regard as well. All right. Verona Murphy, um, you've, you've seen protests in your own constituency. It relates to a hotel that was designated to be a nursing home. Uh, there are a number of asylum seekers already accommodated in Rosslare and people felt that it, it should stay, the Great Southern Hotel should, should stay as, um, as a nursing home in terms of its use. But in terms of the, the communication, have you received any information uh, to pass on to constituents uh, like what Dr Giller laid out there, like the process that people go through so that when constituents raise concerns with you that you can at least provide them with basic information at source to address some of the disinformation that circulates online. Well, I don't actually have to deal with disinformation because nobody has come to me with it. You're right, the issue for the nursing home in Rosslare is one of planning. And it can't be gotten around. It's not an exempted development. It's planned for a nursing home. That's it. I think what's interesting about what Dr Geller has said is we're talking about two things. One is someone who is seeking asylum, for which everybody accepts. And there's nothing new in what Dr Geller has said. Most people are aware that they're coming from war-torn countries and asylum is, is to be granted or not when they go through the process. But what's very prevalent from what she said is that they need services. And if those services aren't available, well, where will we end up? And that is a serious concern for people. And I can tell you this much. You won't find a psychotherapist in the remotest rural locations in Ireland, which from my perspective is actually who cared. Sure. We have over 300. But just on, on that point, but a fixed address and a fixed abode is a good start to begin providing people. No, I don't people agree. I with, don't just, agree. If you let and me I finish, it, it, to begin providing people with that service, provi trying to do services to people who are living on the street in tents is far more difficult. Well, you no? see, this is where it actually comes down to. You, you talk about this as if it's going to be provided. I'm four years as an elected representative and I've 52 times since being elected, I've mentioned the mental, mental health services of CAMS, which 
would provide to young adolescent children these services. They're not available currently and they haven't increased in the four years they've gone backwards. That's just that service for which Dr Geller was very, um, I suppose she was insisting that those services are required. So what we have currently is a situation where we are dumping people into already overburdened communities and this is giving rise to much anxiety that people themselves can't access a but, school, but on, a seat on the school bus. Well, they haven't just, just been on the, able just to on the point, just, okay, but just on the point on, on, on the school bus specifically, even that's an issue that people may point the finger at recent arrivals in the country and say that caused the problem. When in actual fact, the opening of free school transport to anyone and everyone put pressure because lots of people who didn't need it signed up for it. No, if you ask me, and I'm living on the ground in a local rural area, what has actually caused it is we've provided a level of local transport now. And the bus drivers and the buses have gone to facilitate that. Now, I'm not finished, Colm, and this is very important. I mean, people come to me and say that they're sick of the media framing questions in a way to elicit a racist answer. And that's what people are continually being asked about the 50 single men. The reality is, if you continue to place 50 single men of any colour or creed on 35 euros a week, sleeping four to a room for an extended period of time, you're going to have problems in the colour of their skin is not one of them. All right, Paul Murphy, the uh, points outlined by Dr. Giller there, the circumstances that people who have come from and what they're facing when they arrive in Ireland. How do you think that could be alleviated? Would they be better placed in bigger urban areas where there is a greater likelihood of them accessing the services they need? Or is there a problem with locating them in communities that are remote uh, where these fears are being raised? Well, the first thing is that they should not be put onto the streets. There's over 500 men now, international protection applicants, who are on the streets or possibly in emergency homeless accommodation because the government has turned them away. Um, That's a disgrace. It's a disgrace in the context of the weather that we have. It's a disgrace in the context of 20 asylum centres being burned down in the past four or five uh, years and the violence that they're potentially opened up to. So any accommodation is better than being on the streets. The the second point is that I think what, what unfortunately is happening is that increasingly the far right is setting the political agenda in this country. They're putting out misinformation, scaring people about men who are just men like me or you or Barry who are just ordinary men who are unvetted, who are of quote-unquote military age, who are no threat to anybody and they're scaring the bejesus out of people. And then instead of politicians on the ground countering that misinformation at a local level, TDs and councillors, you're hearing them non-stop on RT and across the media at the moment. It's not the media's fault. But what they're doing is we're just echoing the concerns of our local community and so on, as opposed to addressing the misinformation that is behind much of those concerns. So people should be providing information as opposed to just echoing back what they're hearing. And then the third thing that needs to go with information is resources. So yes, we need to say to communities, we're going to provide the medical resources. But we're going to provide the in the, in, but that's, that's what we in, need to in be the absence, to happen. In the absence of yep. those services, do you accept that some community concerns are legitimate, that it's a simple matter of, it, it, it's like the planning issue. If a housing estate is going to be built where you would expect people to move into, that people might expect an extension to the school, another doctor, resources. I, I think all those concerns about resources are legitimate concerns to have, no question about it. Um, I think, let's be clear, 
the housing crisis existed far, far before we had significant increases in asylum seekers coming. Health crisis existed. I think it can suit establishment political parties and those who have benefited from those crises to say the problem is the asylum seekers. So I think we need to fight for resources on those things. But I do think what we need to challenge is the idea that men are a danger. Oh. And the other fi- the final thing is asylum seekers should be given the right to work. That's a concern they of are. people hanging around, not nothing to do, etc. But they but they're, have they're, the right to work. They're not. Not, not for the first six months. The they should be given is, the right to work yeah, immediately because the, there's plenty of work to be done I don't in this disagree with that. That's absolutely correct. But if they're placed in such remote rural locations where they can't access work, that does not bode well for integration. It oh. is not a future planning for where we need the migrant population to actually take up Barry jobs Ward, and work. I, if, if you go to some of the larger urban centres and continental Europe, Brussels, for example, uh, or, or cities in Italy, there are large groups of people, migrant men, who are living rough in public parks. Now, putting people out on the streets and having them congregating in public areas like that, down on their luck, is that the way to address public fears, even if you accept that there are public fears about young men? It makes them arguably more intimidated and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, well, no, it isn't. But that's the government is not doing that to address public fears. The government is not not providing accommodation for people because it doesn't want to. Well, what about it's the cannot. situation in the central mental hospital, for example? There are people in tented accommodation in the grounds. Mm-hmm. But is is it still the case that the building is not in use? Uh, well, it is, but that is the subject of a development plan that is coming, and I don't know the exact details of of when the what the timetable on that is. But what I will say is this. Nobody in government wants to be refusing accommodation to people coming to this country. As I said, these are people who have suffered awful things, have come here looking for our help and assistance. We want to give it to them. Now, there are people who will say we shouldn't be letting them in at all. I don't agree with that. But we should also be making clear to people that it isn't a free-for-all either. There is a very strict process there. They are not unvetted. They are vetted by a process and there's a process that they have to go through. And people shouldn't be concerned because that process does look at criminality. They are fingerprinted, their identities established and it is... okay. And in that processing, in that system where they are being processed, there are now hubs going to be built to uh, uh, to accommodate people while their claims are being processed. Where are those hubs going to be built? Well, that remains to be seen. But there are places certainly where they can be put on. And I know, I know that the department. This doesn't is look like an emergency, plan. does it? When you say that the the central well, mental hospital there's a development plan going on, which is it, exempt it, it, if it, it's, it's going to provide emergency it, accommodation. It's, it's no, to be it's, decided. It's, with, it's a housing development. Just it's to be, to be it's to be decided where these hubs are going to go. It doesn't look like urgency. Well, as I said to you initially, Colm, we have taken in a, a massively increased number of people into this country for good reason. There is a war on the on the borders of Europe. Um, as I said, there, there's a hundred over 104,000 people who have come to this country uh, in the last year looking for protection of this country. And I'm happy that we have accommodated the vast, vast majority. Which are war, wars are not going to stop. Climate well, change is I not think, going to stop. I think stop. what is important to note, Colm, is that this time last year, people are saying there's no way we can take anymore. There's no way we can accommodate people. When war broke out in Ukraine, people said we cannot take more than 20, 30,000. We have gone beyond that. It isn't perfect. There is absolutely work to be done. But have a little faith because actually I think we've achieved an enormous amount. But I think the just Verona Murphy, just want to ask you, how you, you were talking about people being put in remote locations but the protests we've seen are in Ballinrobe, Carlow, Ross Cray. They're towns. They're not remote uh, locations. They're connected. They're, and know, is there a transport hub system in any of them? Not that I know of. And I mean, uh, neither has Ross Well, 
buses that accommodate trains on on a, a probably a couple of hourly, maybe once a day. I mean, I live yeah. in rural Ireland. I know the system in Rosslare. Believe you me, you get on it in the morning and you come home in the evening. The train in Rosslare doesn't even run to Dublin on a working day capacity. Look at Colm. The reality here is, we're we're talking about successful migration is what we should be talking about. And that means integration at community level. It cannot work if people cannot integrate through jobs, through being able to move themselves about and get a cup of coffee and integrate with the community. What I'm going to say to Barry is, we have Thornton Hall in Dublin at a cost of 50 million bought 10 years ago. It's 165 acres. We had seven sites sometime last year where we were going to provide modular accommodation. I have suppliers of modular buildings coming out in my ears. They're not big enough to go through the tender process but they haven't been able to access anything from government where they could actually provide modular builds. The populace is where the services are. They are the urban centres. We should be doing more Thornton Thornton Hall. We talked about the 500 single males. Baggett Street Hospital could be adapted like that. Just one important point. Under SI376, we can build houses and apartment blocks as exempted developments if they are provided for emergency international protection accommodation. You can't do that if you're trying to build a house for your son or daughter in rural Ireland. And I think it's important to state the government's policy is what's failing and that's what's breeding contempt. Uh, Paul Murphy, do, do you think there is uh, an urban-rural divide? And by, me, uh, by that I mean uh, capacity or people's, even people's sense of capacity. Well, I think no matter where centres have been proposed, uh, in particular where they've been proposed for men, there has been some element of opposition, um, at least part of which has been founded on misinformation spread by elements of the far right using this language of unvetted military age men, which comes straight from the, the BNP playbook in, in Britain, by the way. Yeah, which, so which, ma- which, which translate as, you know, military age, for military age, anybody, working age. Exactly, yeah, yeah basically. Um, that anybody that's not a child and presumably isn't over 65 or 70 or whatever. Um, I'll give you the example, right? Um, there is a centre for 200 international protection applicants uh, around the corner from where I live, maybe... 500 metres from where I live. Um, When that was proposed, which is just over a year ago, there were these concerns in the local community that we're hearing about and seeing across the country. Um, I went to a public meeting about it. It was a packed public meeting. Uh, Me, a Socialist Party councillor and a Sinn Féin councillor went and we all had a similar position of um, explaining the kind of thing that the woman at the start was explaining about what these people are fleeing, why, why they're coming here, the conditions that they're going to be in, and arguing that we as Tala are a welcoming community and we should be welcoming these people. There, there were fears before they went in. Since they have gone in, I have not been contacted by one person with any negative incidents that have taken well, place. Well, indeed, the guard, the commissioner, backs up that position. He, that there's been no upswing in criminality no upswing as a result of the arrival of people and I think that seeking is, international protection. I think people have a fear of the unknown, and that's, but, that's but, completely understandable. So it's exactly is, what you were saying yeah, about integration. But, we but, need to throw the resources the at the community is, groups, Paul, the football groups, the sports groups, to say, come in, along, and get involved, and get to know people, and, and realise that these are human beings. We have had all of that. We have two IPAS centres. We have over 300 refugees from the Ukraine. All have been accommodated with the most humane of resources from the community. The difficulty is what Dr. Geller is saying is that they are coming from circumstances where they need services. And, and you have, you and you have made that point. You have said that it, they can't work for six months. If any 
cohort of people are placed in in, in a word would, 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 would you support would you support them being granted the right to work from day one uh, absolutely okay. but uh, I think the reality Ward. is what's more I, I, important I if people are feeling like that and they have those mental health issues and they're coming from and, such and, worn and, torn positions and you have, you have, you have made help. that point you have made that point already Barry Ward this is likely to be uh, an issue in the upcoming local and indeed uh, the European elections um we understand you're throwing your name in the hat for uh, the, the European elections. Is that the case? And, and do you expect this to be an issue? Um, well, I mean, Frances Fitzgerald obviously has said that she won't be running again for Fine Gael in Dublin, which was a shock and a disappointment because she was a super uh, MEP. But this is a very important and difficult time for Europe. We see elections of far-right politicians throughout Europe. And I think it's tremendously important that we have somebody in Brussels who can counter that with sensible, rational, reasonable proposals, but also somebody who will make Dublin's voice heard in Europe as much as to communicate to Dublin what Europe is saying. So in terms of the question you've asked, uh, I will be putting myself forward for the Fine Gael Convention. I hope the Fine Gael members in Dublin will see me as somebody who can do that job. Is your party well. leader aware you're going to put yourself forward? He is, yes, absolutely. Do you, do you have a stamp of approval or his imprimatur? I don't think this? they give stamp of approval to candidates before they get selected by conventions and there'll be a few of us in it. So that must we'll be a disappointment, is it? No, <laughs> nothing that I would have expected. All right, we'll take a break. We'll be hearing from a Palestinian man who's been living here for 10 years but whose family are still in Gaza. He's making an appeal to get them out. Saturday with Colm O'Mungon on RTE Radio 1.